Welcome to Work of Fiction, the podcast that analyzes the fictional organizations you see in movies and TV. Today's episode, Working Girl. And today, our Canadian team is in the studio. Erin and Sarah, won't you introduce yourselves, eh? Hello. Nice one. I'm Erin Cooper, and I'm co-managing director of Nobel in Canada. I'm Sarah Dickinson, and co-managing director of uh, Nobel in Vancouver, Canada. And of course, we're all members of Nobel, an organizational design firm that transforms company cultures. Every month, we take a break from helping real organizations change to discuss fictional leaders and organizations, what works, what doesn't, and most importantly, we talk about the simple tools that they and you, our listeners, can implement to make the workplace better. Okay, today we're talking about Working Girl. Tess McGill is a secretary from Staten Island intent on climbing the corporate ladder, but her working class roots plus casual 1980s sexism hold her back. When her new boss gets in a ski accident, she pretends to be her and teams up with Jack Trainer to put together a business deal for Trask Industries. Will she close the deal before her boss gets back? Spoilers from here on out. Uh, so why don't we just get started? What did you guys think about Working Girl? Um, I loved this movie when it came out. And yes, that's how old I am. But uh, it was quite an uh, interesting, eye-opening, uh, in many ways, uh, film to see a woman uh, who was not only driven to climb the corporate ladder, but was also quite feminine and attractive and uh, also kind of cool. I have a head for business and a bod for sin. It was my first time watching it. I missed it the first time round. Um, so for me, I think it was this epic walk into the 80s. I mean, you know, it was hard for me to... Well, it wasn't difficult for me to concentrate on the plot, but I have to say that the clothes, the outfits, the hair, the height of the hair, the scrunchies, the high tops, you know, it was it was quite something to behold. So, you know, there is a huge amount of uh, nostalgia woven into this, you know, I think a powerful female story, which I was equally horrified, but kind of captured by this by this tale. So let's actually dig into that a little bit more. Uh, as you mentioned, it is clearly the 80s. Boom. From from the hair, the makeup, those shoulder pads, right? Everything, so wide. Everything screams 80s about this movie, uh, including, I would say, the sexism. I, I personally saw this movie for the first time maybe a month ago uh, on an airplane. And, I, and I, when I saw it, I thought, oh, my goodness, we have to talk about mm -hmm. this in the podcast. So I'm glad we're doing it. Do you think... And I, I hope the answer is this. But how do you how do you think sexism in the workplace has changed since the eighties? Is it still as bad as what we saw in Working Girl? I mean, I want to say yes and probably no in some cases. You know, I I think I mean yes, it's a film, right? And and so everything is is dialed up. But I think they were tapping into what was at the time appropriate you know, behavior um, or, or or definitely wasn't condoned. And I think that's probably the biggest shift is sort of a heightened level of awareness 
um, from people along the gender spectrum um, as to what kind of behaviors are actually um, condoned in, in, in the workplace or just generally in life. So I think it's sort of, a, there's been a massive, you know, especially I would say even in the last couple of years, um, a shift in terms of awareness, individual awareness, but also from organizations who are trying to really formalize a point of view and um, and make things, you know, things that were formally implicit. The movie makes them very explicit, but implicit codes, you know, and putting in practices and policies to ensure that that kind of thing doesn't happen anymore. But I still think it probably does. And I think many things probably still exist. They're just more under the surface. Yeah, I would I would agree. I would say just reflecting, you know, back on on my career and the places that I've worked, uh, there is definitely uh, more of an awareness of what is appropriate and inappropriate in terms of language and terms um, and what you can and cannot say. Um, but uh, I would say that it's not exactly gone away. So holding your first interview in a limo with a porn video, still acceptable on its way out. Um, far gone. Okay. Far gone. Um, yes. Yes. When I was researching this this film for our discussion, I thought it was really interesting to hear the story of Melanie Griffith mm-hmm. and how she got involved because she actually faced a lot of the same sexism. Well, yeah, I mean, her previous couple of roles were quite, um, I would say, like she wasn't a taken serious character in, in the previous roles. And she really fought for this role in a very working girl-esque kind of crashing into the audition and and really demanding to be taken seriously. So life imitated art in a way. Yeah. And I think it's just a really great story because, of course, it's fascinating to see how a character portrays, you know, breaking into an industry or or, or making it. But yeah, the same. It really is, as you said, life imitating art Mm -hmm. uh, and very, very inspiring. All right. So, of course, it's not just sexism that we see on the screen. There is also a very clear class divide between the secretaries and the white collar professionals. Similarly, do you think this has changed? Do you think this has evolved? Are people now that everybody wears, you know, hoodies and and sweaters (laughs) to the office? Is it as obvious as it used to be? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I again, I think things are a little bit more. maybe coded or implicit now with I think about the evolution and and, and advancements that we've seen in terms of like blind double blind screening you know for interviews and I think about the UK I think about the US I think it's less prevalent in Canada Erin can talk a little bit more about that but the the school that you went to you know, and even the name of that, I've been, I've always been really interested by, you know, being in the States, working here. And it is, a you know, it's the second or third question that people will ask is what school did you go to? And when I was in London, you know, I was from Manchester and that was, you know, oh, so you didn't go to Cambridge or Oxford, which at the time advertising was pretty full of people who went to, to those two schools, which are, you know, pretty fancy places. And so, you know, there are still these shorthands, these, you know, this sort of um, value, 
I think that is still strongly placed on where you come from, the accent you have, where you went to school. And I, I mean, I think it still exists and I think it varies dramatically by country um, and I do think by industry. So I've been really delighted to see sort of like advancements from a recruitment perspective, but also in, ter- you know, in terms of both class, but also you know, I, I'm blanking on the names of the companies now, but those who've started to really focus on um, individuals who are on the Asperger autism spectrum. And so I think we're making some pretty quick headway, long overdue um, in terms of addressing that different type of discrimination and, and really creating much greater awareness of diversity on all levels. But again, we've got we've still got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, when we were talking about this um, before this, just reflecting on, you know, I can't obviously speak for all of Canada, um, oh. but um, yes, I'm not not uh, not certified quite yet. But um, uh, it, it's not, you know, what university or what school you went to is just it's not as big of a deal. It's not a it's not a usual topic. And I think I think my experience is compounded by the fact that I've spent the majority of my career working in kind of scaling startups and, and in startups, you it's not about kind of what school you went to or what degrees you have or what certifications it's, you have. It's it's what you've done and what you're capable of. And Tess really comes across that problem. She's trying to, at the very beginning of the movie, yeah. she's trying to get into this entree program. And her problem is she's not gone to the right schools, right? She's gone to night school. They turned you down for the entree program again. Why? Did all we could, Tessie. You know, you have to remember, you're up against Harvard and Wharton graduates. What do you got, some night school, some secretarial time on your sheet? And she ultimately, spoiler alert again, gets her job by showing what she can do, right? Mm-hmm. And reading the quote-unquote trashy magazines like People to put together this this mm-hmm. deal. Yeah, I, I mean, I loved, I loved that, you know, some of the the techniques that she used and the skills that she had was, that was one of my favorite parts of the movie was essentially that her curiosity, her open mindedness, her tenacity, her grit to do. I mean, that's where the story begins. This wasn't sort of, you know, in many ways, like a rags to riches kind of story. She came in, you're introduced to this character who has a very, you know, particular point of view and, and view on the world and herself. And so I think it's, you know, she's a strong woman from the very beginning. I, I didn't get the sense that she was like lost trying to find, you know, her way, you know, her way. Um, she she had that. And I think the beautiful, another beautiful piece for me was the was the sisterhood that gave her that confidence. You know, she has that difficult dynamic with her best friend, but that, you know, these sisters were behind her all the way and were celebrating her in comparison to Catherine, who is this lonely you know, sort of woman on her, you know, and and I think that's a sort of a very, very strong um, part of the movie. And by sisters, way. are we talking about her friends, the the secretaries? Was, yeah, mm-hmm. the, commu- the community of working class, you know, secretaries, quote unquote, you know, who were in the pool and, and, and striving, but also thriving. They look like they're having a great time. That scene when, uh, when Tess kind of makes it and calls Sin and says, guess where I am? And then, you know, since stands up, Joan Cusack, who's so incredible, stands up and is like, she did it. And this, you know, the camera pans out and you see everyone around her all cheer. It's a pretty, you know, a pretty positive moment of of kind of solidarity there. All right. So let's let's put a little bit of a pin in that. I definitely want to come back to this, this contrast, right, between the sisterhood of secretaries and Catherine, right? I, so I would argue the movie really gets going 
when Tess gets her new job working for her first female boss, who is Catherine Parker, played by Sigourney Weaver. And at first, it feels like Catherine was like a really welcome change, right, from from all the male bosses. So, Tess, a few ground rules. The way I look at it, you are my link with the outside world. People's impression of me starts with you. You're tough when it's warranted, accommodating when you can be. You're accurate, you're punctual, and you never make a promise you can't keep. I'm never on another line. I'm in a meeting. I consider us a team, Tess. And it seems like she's trying to be a positive influence on Tess's life. So how would you describe, no, what are some of the challenges that female leaders in particular face? And how is, how is Catherine navigating those? My first view on this is that I think at the time, I'll put myself in good old Catherine's shoes, even though she's kind of awful. And I am, after all, me. She didn't have, you know, her role models, Catherine's role models, were, were all men in, the, in, the, in this dog-eat-dog, you know, environment. And so, I mean, you're talking about, you know, it's very extreme. And I would hope, I believe deeply, that there is now a, that there are many more uh, types of role models. Uh, because I think what was happening in the 80s and probably still into the 90s is the majority of um, female leaders had male, you know, were used to sort of, you know, a lineage of, uh, of, of male bosses and, and that was sort of who, who shaped them and for better or for worse. And, I, 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 you know, one of the big things I think is, uh, you know, that has improved is sort of having a broader spectrum of, of role models. And I would say that's the same same you know, across the gender spectrum is just that there's greater diversity there. But I still think to answer you, you know, to go back to your question, Paula, there probably still isn't enough. There are still many, many people who do not see uh, others in leadership roles who look, you know, and identify as they do. So there's still a long ways to go. No, nothing. no. I mean, I would say that she has done what she can to get into the role that she is in. Right. And all of that has worked for her so far. So why would she do anything different? Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Uh, I, I think the other I mean, to, to keep, go a bit further in terms of what um, female leaders are still stands in that way. Yeah. Um, I think there are, you know, I mean, you just have to look at every industry. There are still systemic blockers to, you know, up, you know, mobility. There's still a ceiling in many instances. We just have to look at what the data tells us in terms of pay scales, mobility, promotions. So, you know, while the awareness has improved, I think, you know, the behavior um, still has to change in many, many ways. And I think there's still, you know, some step, there are still stereotypes. I think there is a still a wrath of assumptions as it relates to, um, you know, around, so especially around sort of the intersection of carers and careers, mm -hmm. you, know, there's, you know, we could spend all afternoon talking about working parents, but, you know, I think there are many. It's not the name of the movie. It's <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I think there's mm -hmm. still, you know, stereotypes, I still think that there is, you know, an undervaluing of contributions. And again, I'm not just going to say that that's for, for women. I think that's for all, um, you know, minority groups. So, and having voices heard that, you know, aren't heard as widely. So I think these things still stand in the way. Yeah. I mean, even just thinking about the name of the movie is Working Girl. Not Working Woman. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. The better we get to know Catherine, 
the the clearer it becomes that she is a villain. Namely, she steals Tess's idea for mm-hmm. Trask Industries, right? And passes it along without giving any of the credit to Tess. So oh, it's really interesting. If you look at the articles that are written now about this movie, there is a lot of criticism of Catherine because they say, well, she's only acting like there's one seat at the table, right? She should absolutely bring Tess along and give her the credit. Agree? Disagree? It's either her or no. it's Tess. It can't be both of them together. And so what the, the, the villainous behavior is really not lifting up another woman and continuing on the path as if you are the only one who could ever have a seat at that table. I would say that Catherine has probably felt you know, and, and does feel out of place and does feel like, you know, this is a huge mountain to climb for her. And so for her to go out on a limb for another woman probably is a threat to her leadership position or her role. Right. And so she doesn't do it because of that, because that's her experience. Yeah. And we get from that, you hear a lot about queen bee syndrome, right? Where, where if there's one woman at the top, she's going to try and keep all the other women down. So how do we how do we change that right how can we encourage women to support other women in the office uh i think there's a huge amount in terms of allyship and sponsorship so i I mean i think especially sponsorship i'd like to think you know i think the real power comes from um you know male leaders being really really strong allies and um you know, being active bystanders into behavior that is inappropriate. Um, I think sponsorship, so identifying opportunities for those around you, definitely those who are working for you to, um, you know, make those, it's not just about promotions, but to make those connections either inside the organization or outside. Um, To increase visibility, I think, has a huge piece to do with it. And Um, So just creating those opportunities. Another thing to consider is amplification. So um, recognizing when uh, a a woman uh, or even a person of color uh, has an idea that is uh, good and making sure that everyone knows where that came from. Um, That's a really great idea. Yeah. Just like that. So that's an example of amplification. Oh, that's what you're doing there. I was like, this is kind of weird. I just feel like I've been amplified. (laughs) How, how does it feel? Don't you feel like feel, you're, you're feel, getting recognition? Yeah, I feel like my microphone got bigger. <laughs> so so when Catherine is, is out sick with a broken leg, Tess finally gets her chance. She basically takes over the role, right? Uh, but she has she has a lot of class signifiers. We actually see her go through like a makeover scene, essentially. It's 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 kind of funny. And in some ways it's like the devil wears Prada. Twenty years later, she she gets a serious haircut. She she practices so she loses her, her heavy Staten Island accent. Uh so I'm just curious what you guys thought about that makeover scene. Or not, if you don't have opinions. You don't have to have opinions. I think I was still focused on the shoulder pads. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think it was. I, I, you know, the whole thing has a sort of Cinderella-esque quality to it, you know, where she's, you know, maybe reinventing herself sort of for the, for the ball, let's say. Um, yeah, I mean, she was she was taking she was taking those cues. I mean, I think I think one thing that still exists today is sort of a preoccupation that um, women in the workplace have about their appearance. I don't think that's gone anywhere. Um, I, I think there are, 
you know, examples of, you know, what Tess is doing literally on a, on a second by second basis. And, you know, do I go into a meeting without, you know, putting an important meeting without putting makeup on? I think there's like some really deep socialization there and expectations, but also I think it's coming from a place now, perhaps where it's less about conforming and more about, you know, me leading out in a way that I want to and and how do I feel good about myself? So I think, you know, it's it's shifted slightly, but again, you we just have to look at the high street, you know, the high street of, you know, blow dry bars and and what have you. I mean, the same thing is is even more amplified. We're in a, you know, the selfie era. It's it's, you know, I think that piece is like out of control. Yeah. I, I actually um, you know, I going through that makeover scene, I'm like, oh my goodness, she looks so much better. Um, and then, and then, you know, right? I find myself thinking that, and then they're at the, they're at the bar where she meets, uh, Harrison Ford, uh, Jack Trainer, and he says to her, you're the first woman I've seen in one of these damn things that dresses like a woman, not like a woman thinks a man would dress if he was a woman. That and then was... I'm just like, oh, this is all wrong. I feel so bad for saying that you looked great. And also you're wearing a fur coat. And of course things do get more complicated when she meets the attractive boyfriend, Jack Trainer who he essentially, it, it's especially complicated because he is intended to be a business partner going in, but then when they first meet, he is purely a love interest and actually hides his identity. Totally cool, because she's also kind of hiding her identity, right? So it's fine. It's it's like the same thing. The point is, they end up as both business partners, and at least for uh, a good portion of the movie, boyfriend, girlfriend, mm-hmm. lo- love part interest uh what are some of the challenges of of mixing business with pleasure especially because i mean let's let's be realistic people do meet their spouses in the workplace you spend 40 hours it or more sometimes a lot more in the world like where else are you supposed to meet people and the proof is here yes we both did how how can you keep your business and your personal life separate should you keep where is where is it okay right like what are some what are some guidelines well i think you know not working directly with your partner is usually a good idea for not just the workplace but also for your relationship um and um because i think you know if you especially if you are both in power positions no one will ever come to one of you if they have a challenge with the other person. And so you're not really creating a safe space for others. You're, you're considered at a united front. Um, and, you know, there, then there's just also just the, the like not letting your kind of emotions and um, the fight you had in the morning at breakfast time carry their way into the office and have everyone else kind of feel that. Uh, I think a high level, you know, I think mm-hmm. what Aaron's getting at is like that, for it to work in the way that you described it, Paula, like requires a high level of self-awareness and mm-hmm. maturity and and a commitment to if you know keep keep the two you know harmonious in the in the right places and and understand that not just from your own perspective in those heady romantic days. Um, I'm sure it can be quite exciting. I don't remember those days, but um, but but more you know more take the position of you know those that are working with you. And and also sort of the expectations of the culture. And, you know, I think really being dialed on that as opposed to, you know, messy and sloppy. I've seen some bad situations, you know, things 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 can go a bit sideways. It takes a lot of it's it's good to go into it with intention, I think. 
So one of my favorite lines in the entire movie is when Tess is challenged about how she is acting. And by that, I mean she is pretending to be her boss and and putting together this deal. No, I'm trying to make it better. I'm not going to spend the rest of my life working my ass off and getting nowhere just because I followed rules that I had nothing to do with setting up, okay? So when thinking about your own career and when thinking about your progression, is it better to beg forgiveness than ask permission? How how do you advance if you're not seen, if you're not being given these opportunities? I mean, I like to think that I, I mean, I, I, I had strong respect for her, uh, I mean, I mentioned before, sort of, you know, her tenacity, her creativity, um, just how hard she was working, you know. And I think if I look back at my own career of putting myself in situations, actively choosing to put myself in situations, and I realized that there's a level of privilege that comes with being able to have those choices to do so, um, I really, the, the, her character really resonated me with, from that perspective. I would, I would definitely opt for the, um, ask for forgiveness, um, and, and not for permission and have advised other, you know, younger people to, to do just that, um, and to seek out opportunities that might not have a immediate win. Um, you might, you know, it's a long game in many instances and, you know, and, and, I think sort of having building that network, um, I think a network is, is is a big piece, not just in sort of your chosen field, but sort of, you know, maintaining those relationships, cultivating, you know, that sisterhood and, you know, and, and, and wide network, I think, pay dividends um, over the years. That's been my um, some of the things that I've really prioritized and tell other people to do so. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I'm I would definitely be an ask for forgiveness type person. And I would add that, you know, the, I agree in that pursuit. As long as it's that pursuit of the experience and curiosity and learning and not a pursuit of a reputation of I did this and I did that, because that's when I think things get a bit insincere and um, uh, won't get you very, very far. And to be clear, we're not actively encouraging anybody to actually go out and impersonate your boss and putting no. together. We want to make sure we're, we're on the record as, as saying that. But I, I think we should interpret that as you know looking for those opportunities to to push yourself yeah to to test yourself and maybe try something you don't necessarily know yet absolutely right yeah. but you're willing to take that chance so in the end of course Tess makes it she gets her own office she gets her own secretary she's done it right um so she sits down with her secretary and has basically the same talk that she had with Catherine at the very beginning of the movie I uh I expect you to call me Tess. I don't expect you to fetch me coffee unless you're getting some for yourself. And um, the rest will just make up as we go along. So getting back to this idea of, like you said at the very beginning, Sarah, this idea of, you know, the individual versus like that sisterhood and, and supporting people. What was your take on on how Tess has evolved and changed throughout the film? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was glad to see that she, you know, she she caught herself. And I think what I want to believe happened next was that she listened to her assistant who called her. She was like, I prefer assistant. I loved seeing that dynamic. You know, she was also, she also, they had also portrayed somebody in a, you know, in a no-nonsense. It wasn't just Tess. 
it was there was already a step change that was kind of happening um and you know that that she was also that it that there was more mutuality in terms of sort of you know this is what i expect of you and this is this is you know and vice versa and that Tess would go from here and and use her, not like in a bad way, use her to to learn and, you know, about the firm and what was working and how she could, you know, how they could work together to, you know, to further both of them. And, you know, I kind of I wish that was sort of, you know, two minutes longer, actually, because it was very, very skinny at the end. Um, but, you know, the, I, I loved the sort of shorthands that she said about, you know, only get me coffee if you're getting yourself one, right? Mm -hmm. And there was one other one that I can't remember. But, um, you know, just just that she was laying these, you know, some ground rules there, which by the, you know, which you knew and, you know, her assistant's face were very, very different from what she was usually hearing, used to hearing. Yeah, I, I do. I agree that that should have been longer. I felt like that was quite light. I mean, those ground rules were not really ground rules. And I, and I wanted, I, I think Tess is smarter to think that she's thought more about what she wants to do and to have a conversation with her assistant as to what that might be and to, you know, her assistant's been there longer than her, we assume. So this is a great opportunity for them to have a conversation about what it's like to work there. How do things get done here? How, you know, who do I need to meet? Who do I need to collaborate with? Who are the big players here? And it was more of a like, oh, great, I got an office. It's pretty clear that there was not a lot of discussion about jobs, roles, and responsibilities. When t Tess was mm. hired, she she just shows up and she just assumes that she's she's the secretary. She's, she's starting from the bottom, is yeah. what he says, right? Very, you know, you have to start at the beginning or something when Trask hires mm. her. She did have that lunchbox there that was a bit like a treasure chest. That was, yes. that was I was I was still stuck on that as yes. well. Yeah, I think that's going to help her a lot. So I, I actually love that you guys have both called out this idea that, like, you know, it would have been great if there would have been two more minutes because, yeah. of course, you both advise leaders uh, in, in organizations about how to introduce yourself, how to set yourself up for success, how to bring your team along with you so that they can both de develop their own careers as well as support you and achieve the goals that you've set for the team. So what would how how would you, if you had those extra two minutes to screenwrite, what are some of the things that Tess would tell her secretary? Well, I, I mean, I, I would say, and this is what we often say, is like, it's more about listening than telling at the beginning. So, you know, ideally you're sharing, yes, some of your working preferences, things that, you know, things that you appreciate, how you like to be communicated with, frequency, things like that. Things that we often advise in some sort of manual of me, for example. Um, but then listen. So uh, asking the assistant, what's it like to work here? How do people collaborate? What are the big meetings? What's happening? What, you know, what projects have gone well here and why? What projects haven't? So having that conversation and listening before you kind of come in with your mandate about I'm going to make all these changes because I know all of this stuff. So it's starting with a little bit of humility and a bit of kind of self-disclosure. Yeah. I mean, I think, and I think, you know, the reverse is true as well. So, you know, I think um, when we talk about, you know, managing up, um, we talk a lot about empathy and, and that concept that I mentioned of mutuality that, you know, it really is about the collective unit of you two as a, as a pair. And so how can you also learn about the other person in terms of their working preferences, how they deal with problems, um, how they make decisions 
and and also I I, I think in a new relationship, um, just spending time together. Um, Aaron's Aaron's you know mentioned a few examples, but I think really understanding who that person is outside of you know, and not I don't mean sort of like, hey let's go away for the weekend, um, but <laughs> are there some moments to you know to humanize that relationship, um, learn where that person has come from, um, what got them to here, what was their last experience like. Um, for their last manager, for example, and, you know, spending that time to round out the understanding. And then as you're talking about, Paula, the big piece that we often focus on is around role clarity. Um, you know, for teams, especially, they have to go through that, you know, norming and storming, forming, norming and storming phase. And, you know, what really, really does support a team is having that clarity um, and, and strong leadership around these are, you know, this is your role and these are your responsibilities and, and making that, you know, as clear as possible from the outset. So final question. Tess has been in her role for a couple of months now. She's doing great. Good news. She's invited us into Trask to, to consult. What, where would we go first? What are some of the things that we would want to uh, teach the organization? What would we advise Tess as a leader um, we could talk about some inclusive behaviors uh, and, and ways to go about that. Um, I, you know, there were not a lot of women at Trask Enterprises. You see the camera zoom out at the end when she's in the office. And I looked in all those little tiny windows of all those offices and nobody else looked like Tess. And so they could definitely um, do with some programming around how to elevate women and how to get women into higher positions within that organization. Diversity and inclusion. I love it. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and probably starting from a hiring perspective, you know, I, I, I'm not convinced that those folks have got a strong pipeline of, uh, of female candidates. <laughs> Maybe a mentorship program. A mentorship well? program. We talked about sponsorship before, mm -hmm. you know, I think, um, you know, for the women that do work at Trask, you know, where are their opportunities there? And then, you know, I think there has to be, to your point, Paula, some uh, inclusive, um, inclusiveness um, as it relates to how those senior managers are operating. The other thing I'd add, too, is that the fact that that organization had to wait for an outsider to come to them with that opportunity means that that organization is, is not looking externally enough for ideas and not actually innovating. They're probably, you know, very set in their ways that this is the way we've always done things. And so another company is probably going to be eating their lunch pretty soon. So we would definitely start by talking about their external orientation. So how do we do that? What does that look like? Simple exercise. Sensing. Sensing. Um, yeah, a good quarterly sensing meeting or even a deep dive to begin with to, um, to really look at the factors and forces that are shaping our industry. Um, and then really doing some scenario planning around you know, what's the trajectory of those factors and forces um, and likelihood that they will uh, will really impact us. And then to what extent? And if that does happen, you know, it's it's a case of then what shall we do? So, a, you know, a set of if, if then um, scenarios can really help to bolster that resilience and create a little bit more of, uh, you know, an informed uh, you know, path forward. I think connected to that is the adaptive planning um, process. I think Trask could definitely do with a little bit of that. So, you know, that takes in some of uh, those inputs from sensing, does some, you know, big picture visioning, and then it's all about placing those bets 
and really course correcting um, to uh, to the outcomes of a set of experiments. Um, so bringing that idea of adaptivity and iteration into your strat planning process, again, in service of, you know, resilience and being able to uh, respond more rapidly to, to change. And to be clear, increasing diversity and inclusion isn't just a nice thing to do, right? It's not just a, the, the <laughs> no. right thing. To your point, it, it's also going to bring in these fresh ideas and these new perspectives. Again, Tess got her idea because she was reading people and quote unquote trashy magazines instead of HBR. So bringing in those different perspectives is going to help you adapt and prepare better for the future so that you are you're ready to meet your customers where they are. So let's say that you're looking for opportunities to stretch and grow yourself as a leader, just as Tess was, just as Trask was. What are some opportunities? How can you continue to improve yourself as a leader? Well, pretty excited to talk about the upcoming leadership retreat that we have September the 1st through September the 5th. It is Nobel's first ever leadership retreat. Um, and we're pretty excited about it. It's going to be um, in Canada um, on the very, very magical Cortez Island, which is off the coast of Vancouver Island, um, up near Vancouver and on an island called Cortez. And this is an incredible place to learn new skills, to really recharge um, as all of us as leaders need to do and create new community with people who are wrestling and striving and hopefully thriving with many of the same challenges that you are. So the focus is resilient leadership. And what we mean by resilient leadership is really that in the, you know, in today's anxious, highly volatile and uncertain times, we need to generate new skills new behaviors and mindsets to face those challenges and importantly bounce back in a way that you know, maintains performance and, and well-being of everybody involved. We're going to be focused on the self, right? So, you know, we can all think we want change and like put all our hands up. Yep. Yep. I'm game with this. But to actually change your own behavior and do things differently is quite a different task. So that idea of the adaptive self is something we're going to be exploring through presence, greater self-awareness, mindfulness. We'll then be bringing our, you know, tried and true best practices around leading change. So how, you know, it's very, very different to, you know, introduce a PowerPoint of great changes, you know, compared to marshalling a group of unwieldy, very human <laughs> beings um, through change, you know, themselves. It can be, you know, it's it's emotional, it's messy. Um, so we're going to be talking about that and then taking, you know, finally taking a step back and thinking about some of the systemic changes um, that all of us want to be to, to be seeing in service of more human um, uh, organizations. So it's going to be incredible. We're going to have a cohort of, uh, of leaders from around the world, from different sectors. So the opportunity here to share learnings, create those peer connections is that much greater. Oh, thank you, Erin and Sarah, for coming down to join us. If you are interested in attending their program, shoot an email to heart at nobel.io. That's H-E-A-R-T at N-O-B-L dot I-O. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening to Work of Fiction. Don't forget to subscribe for future updates and leave us a rating if you liked what you heard. 
You can find more episodes or get in touch with us at workoffiction.fm. <laughs>